Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. As always, I appreciate you tuning into the podcast. We've created a questionnaire to better understand you, the listener, and what it is that keeps you coming back to listen to the podcast. We want to know what's working for you and what you want more or possibly less of. Please take a few minutes to head over to bit.ly forward slash made visible podcast to fill this out. Again, that's bit, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash made visible podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'm excited to share today's guest with you. I've seen Saad de Simone walking around the assemblage, our mutual co-working space, for months now, and he has a certain presence about him. Saad is a meditation teacher, best-selling author, transformational speaker, and coach. I was intrigued to learn more about his story, especially with depression and dedication to mental health advocacy work. So welcome, Saad. Hi. So happy to have you here. Same here, love. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Okay, we're starting there. <laughs> <laughs> where it all began. Okay. Um, I was born in Brazil. My mom's Italian. My dad's Lebanese. And we moved to Florida when I was 16. And that's where a lot of, you know, to say the very least, a lot of trauma started to be reinforced. And, uh, and new things I picked up on. Uh, it was also the first time I was debilitated by depression. And then... From Florida, as soon as I finished high school, I was like, oh my God, get me the fuck out of here. So I went to L.A., lived in L.A. for a little bit, and then moved to New York. And in New York is where I really started to literally come out of the closet and be fully myself. Uh, and throughout this process, a lot of up and downs happened. I guess I can just go into like why I do this work today, right? Absolutely. Okay. So at 23 years old, I had the amazing opportunity of starting a fashion magazine. Um, I don't know if you guys remember if you're in the fashion art music industry called Bullet Magazine. 12 countries, really well distributed, really well placed. And, uh, you know, we put Cindy Crawford on the cover at a point where like no one's really talking about her anymore. And um, we also put uh, Mark Ruffalo on the other cover, someone who was talking about uh, environmental issues at a time when no one's really giving an opportunity for celebrities to have opinions in this way. And then fast forward about almost like two and a half, three years later, I have a falling out with my business partner slash best friend. And of course, throughout the process of the magazine, I uh, was, you know, crumbling with like anxiety and like spurts of depression here and there a lot. But I, I never really understood uh, mental health and never really knew what was really happening, I just felt like, oh, I feel like shit. So I should just smoke another cigarette, take another bump, have another glass of wine or buy myself something else, you know? And my definition of success and my relationship to ambition really set me off to be on this path. And um, one thing led to another, that the buyout, the falling out happened in uh, the fall of 2012. And then I went into another really deep, dark hole. And this time I kind of knew what was happening. It was like betrayal. It was a real hard ache for me. And uh, I couldn't forgive my business partner and I couldn't forgive myself for the mistakes I had made. And that set me off on like a remorse and a guilt trip 
And it wasn't just like, girl, stop having a guilt trip. Pull your shit together. It was like, I couldn't. You know, it was neurotic, sometimes even psychotic. It was it was dark times. Um, and then one thing led to another. I went to Berlin and I got exposed to a whole, whole new vocabulary of world peace, inner peace, gurus, sacred rivers, entheogenic medicine, meditation, and fundraising for NGOs and things like that. I was like, who are you guys? What is all this? I need to get the fuck out of here. Y'all weird. Who knew that, you know, (laughs) years later, this would be completely my life's mission and work and really where I felt most at home. And uh, in retrospect, looking back, like the time in fashion and my relationship to fashion now, how it's all opened up to creative expression of how good I feel inside. You talked about drugs and alcohol and shopping being your outlet. Was there therapy? <laughs> Was there like, did you actually get diagnosed with depression at 16 or at 18? And were there any formal treatments put in place? No traditional uh, treatments and no traditional diagnosis. Uh, it was very much of something that like my mom picked up on because in my mom's side of the family, depression and suicide are close to home. Her mother committed suicide when she was uh, 13 years old. Wow. Uh, and it was the kind of thing where mom went out to play with the kids on her way back. They all saw the ambulance car and the you know people at the house. And, you know, one of my, my mom's brother even saw the body still agonizing on the floor. She had shot her, uh, herself in the head. And one thing that's really clear when you meet my brother and my sister, you see they have your complexions, light skin, light eyes, light hair, uh, not light eyes. Your brother doesn't have any hair. Exactly. (laughs) But he's got the lighter skin, you know. And one thing that was like a a huge part of me feeling like just out of sorts in, in my home was looking at my brother and my sister and my mom and my dad and not feeling at home because of what they look like. And then the link to how my grandma looked. And then, of course, my mannerisms and the way I related to people. My mom said it was so similar, though my mom only had a short-lived life with her mom. But she said so much of who I am, I so connected to how she was. Mm. And then when I was experiencing these dark periods, uh, my mom was like, oh, my God. She knew it already, you know. And it's funny. I mean, I don't really like to say this a lot. But, you know, every parent has their favorite child. And it was kind of clear that because I had this, like, mental, you know, illness from such a young age... My mom chose to not let the mental illness to make it my identity. So she would do everything she could to help me out. But, you know, she didn't have any training. So she would feed us more food or she would buy us more stuff. But one thing she did very well, she took me to a a Colombian holistic doctor uh, where he read the iris of my eye. And that reading, you know, I guess that reading sort of set my mom off to know that there is some herbal medicine that could help me with that state that I was in. Um, and then when I went off to on my soul searching journey to Berlin was the beginning and and then later on to be you know located in like India and Nepal, uh, it was when I got really familiar with you know the traditional scientific, prescriptive, clinical vocabulary of what depression and anxiety. Uh, was and is all about. And I was like, oh my God, how the fuck did I manage, you know, to go out and to work every day and to, it was just that cloud. It was a cloud the way I talk about it now with clients who I have like success stories and ones who are still in crisis management. Um, you know, the cloud was here and it was cluttering my view of myself and the world. 
And it was this weight that I carried around and like the narrative of of suicidal ideation would, you know, pass by the mind's eye. You know, there was sometimes there was, you know, once every few thoughts and to then come out of the other side, it was like, oh, my God, I need to make this my life's mission. Nothing else matters than to help people have one good day. Right. And now it starts with one good practice, you know. Um, or a five-minute meditation. Or yes. Plugging exactly. his book, which we'll be sure to get to. <laughs> yes. But when your mom sort of diagnosed you, mm-hmm. did you go and do any sort of research to learn this is depression, this is mental illness, this is, you know, what my grandmother went through? Mm-hmm. Did you try to learn that language? Not at 16, because at 16, it was just so hard to even get out of bed. It, there was like a two week period that I was like, oh my God, you know, something's off here. But then later on, when I started to write about things and write about my personal journey and get to know like what was really going on and why was I so debilitated by the quality of my thoughts, by the quality of my my inability to process my emotions and how that would show up with cravings and attachments and um, you know, again, that same old habit of drugs, sex, alcohol, and, you know, shopping was still a big part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Yes. So um, you talked about Berlin and how you were pretty resistant towards these people that were doing these what seemed like out there things that now has become your life. Tell us a little bit about what shifted there and how it's now your life. Well, I why did I decide to go to Berlin in the midst of like me being, you know, completely broken inside and out you know literally the i had my whole entire life that i had built myself up to taken away from me you know moving to america as an immigrant and then having strict parents where success and, and ambition are rooted in like money and accumulation of stuff when i had all of it taken away from me in that fall of 2012 i was like oh my god who can i talk to and the first person that came to mind was my friend tiffany that i had met in la when i was 20 years old and i met her she was bare feet playing her guitar on hollywood boulevard so i was like oh my god she's a hippie she knows the, about the matters of the heart let me go see her so and it was this pool right it was this like inner knowing that we all have that sometimes it's a little whisper Harper, come here. Sometimes like, yo, wake the fuck up. Go see her because she's got answers. So I went to Switzerland and Switzerland. She's like, come see my friends in, in Berlin. And I felt really awkward, to be honest, because I didn't have anything to add. And I, you know, I usually would feel like I have something to add to most conversations because I'm coming from New York, working in high fashion magazines, surrounded by all these celebrities, quote, living the dream. But in truth, like, you know, I was just a crumbling mess, putting on the mask to show up to work every day. And you were the seeker in this moment. You were the one trying to explore what could work here. What are all these people that are into this thing? Exactly. How can I get a piece of this yeah. and get an understanding if it can help me? Yeah, precisely. You know, it started with a, a, uh, how we can help me. I want to riff off of that because it did start from a selfish motive of just like, how could I feel better? How? What are these people talking about? How can we have a three-hour breakfast where no one is drinking, but people are just like laughing, mm-hmm. you know? What is a walk in a park without stimulation? You know, how can we ride bikes without being high? I don't, it was just the simplest ways of living. I didn't get it. I just wasn't trained in that way, you know? Um, granted, my parents are incredible people, but the vocabulary that they knew how to, you know, change our default mindset or what has chemically been passed on to us, um, 
they didn't have a ways to help us to reboot the system or redesign. So I went off to search and, you know, I was really at a point where I didn't have a choice. It was either I continued on the path of self-harm or I chose self-love and self-healing. And that's when I bought a one-way ticket later on, a year after this, to go to India. And mind you, at that point, I was meditating for like five minutes a day. And then I was like, I'm going to go to India. And I, three days later, I'm in a silent retreat for 10 days and meditating for eight hours a day. Uh, after the retreat, I had an opportunity to meet His Holiness Dalai Lama. We sit in this talk and it was just like all of this, you know, being bombarded at me. And the moment that I met my first teacher as I walk into the retreat, the fabulous and powerful thing about it, it was, you know, some people make you feel at home just by being next to them. Some people don't uh, instigate thoughts of anxiety or feelings of, of anger or whatever, right? This teacher, Venerable John Nissel, this uh, Canadian Tibetan Buddhist nun, being in her presence, just the way she looked at me, it was all of a sudden my internal landscape was like, Ooh. wow. And I was like, what did you just do to me? Because five minutes later, as I crossed that gate, my thoughts were going, you know, like a machine, a factory of negativity towards myself and other people. And I just couldn't stop. It was like an unconscious critic, uh, critical analysis of everyone and, every, and, and myself, every step, right? And then just being in her presence, everything was like, ooh, hey, girl, you're fine. So I had to like, you know, go inside, fetch for, for uh, thoughts to, you know, have any sort of connection and it's not the the heart connection it's like the mental analytical connection of, of who she is where where does she fit how is you know all these ways that we label people i had to like search in there to give her a label to then be able to relate to her quotes mm -hmm. and then sitting through the retreat we did a uh, a death meditation and i literally saw again another thing that happened before the quality of my thoughts had become so tormented by meditating on death that I, amongst a group of 80 people, half of it, if not two thirds of the group, had become sick just by meditating on death, just by having, you know, the mind going to that space. And that's when I decided, I was like, oh my God, there's something here that I'm really interested in and whatever this is, I want to know more. And that's then what I went to do a 30-day meditation retreat in Nepal. And that's when all this shit came up. Wow. So you went from five, some no meditation. Five minutes. Five yeah. minutes mm -hmm. to this several-day retreat. 10-day retreat. 10-day retreat to 30-day. To a 30-day in Nepal. Later okay. that fall, yeah. And so talk to us a little bit about that. Um, the 30-day retreat was where it all sort of broke open. For the first two weeks, I was kind of, you know, not laughing, outwardly laughing, but just like laughing in my head like, why is everyone crying at breakfast? Why are people like moping around and then like writing angrily on their journal? And I was just kind of walking around being so grateful to be in Nepal and, you know, being in this course and learning so much and so open and, you know, smiling and still like getting up in the morning to like put on my look and sleeping with my hair in braids, you know, so I can have my hair looking good in the morning until I enter the second week, the end of the second week where my internal landscape had fall, had been even more silent than ever before that all the unprocessed stuff started to come up. And I started to realize how much I fucked up in the past, how much I had the big and the small mistakes 
and the imprint of the pain that I'd caused other people and then how I judged myself in regards to that. And then the foundation of that, how just how much I had abandoned myself throughout this path in big and small ways, right? And that's when I became the mess. You know, I was the walking, sobbing, mopey, crying mess. And because we were in silence, people would put notes. I hope you're doing okay. But leave a little note to my meditation cushion. Let me know if you need anything. Here's some vitamin C. You know, things like that. <laughs> a <laughs> so little mantra. So sweet, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and then I started to to know what compassion really means. Um, you know, this wish for for people to be free of suffering and then self-compassion meant the wish for myself to be free of suffering. And I didn't felt like I was worthy of being free of suffering. And that was big. That's huge. <laughs> what a statement. Yeah. So that 30 day really opened me up. It set me off to be on this path, you know, because as much as I went to the depth of, you know, the darkest bottom of the pit, I was able to see the light of the other side and, and know that we all have potential. And no matter how much trauma I had experienced in this life, it wasn't too big that it couldn't be healed. That's amazing. And so what led you to do this professionally and sort of turn your life purpose to mm -hmm. help other people through this? Great question. Thank you. Um, well, I'm going to share something. During the 30-day retreat, I had an opportunity to meet with two realized people when you know when I say realize is people who've devoted their lives to be of service to all beings you know and they've both said to me you're gonna use your voice to share and I was like honey I'm just beginning I got a lot of work to do and thanks for that I'm gonna make no but pause as like, in halt. this is about me what do you mean yeah as in like okay girl go Go do you now. Go, go. And, and then much later, I started to like realize that like it was really a matter of just, you know, this selfless act of, hey, come back to New York City and spread the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma. Find ways to be of service, to encourage people to breathe, encourage people to train their mind, encourage people to find ways to have compassion for themselves and find ways for us to befriend the inner critic. And that was a big part for me. But in all honesty, um, the way it's happened, how fast everything has moved in this last uh, two years, I didn't plan on this. And people have asked me at the early, you know, at the beginning of it. So where do you see yourself, you know, doing this? Like, oh, you've been teaching here and there. And, you know, you've gone to all these places. Such a New Yorker question. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, show me some, tell me some ideas. Da, da, da. Where do you see yourself? And I was like, I have no idea. I'm just... To be honest with you, I'm just happy to be alive. And this connection to how precious it is to be alive uh, gave me an opportunity to bring something forth to every day um, and play and laugh and love deeper and create, you know, um, and then spread the, the power of forgiveness, which was for me was the real foundation of how I see how it all sort of like started. It was like one talk at Washington Square Park to like 50 people about forgiveness. Some dude from Google says, hey, we should talk. And then doing this workshop where, you know, people from my old world came, all these celebrity stylists and writers came. And then 
one thing led to another and, da, 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 and then getting, uh, you know, to go teach at all these different places. And then the newest thing, going to Uganda with Kim and Kanye and leading meditation, compassion meditation there. And um, so foundation of my work and, and just laying it out there, as much as I meditate on like the impermanence of reality, my daily practice has been rooted in compassion. Like, how can I open my heart up even wider? Because we close our hearts so often in the face of suffering, even for myself, you know, I start to judge myself a little bit. And the next narrative is like judgment of the judgment and how that perpetuates. It's like, let's order some more French fries. Let's get some ice cream, <laughs> yep. you know, um, or old cravings wanted to creep back in. You know, the work has become very rooted on like, how do I make compassion cool and attainable and and something that we are inspired to to talk about over lunch and dinner. And how can we get to know and be surprised in how we can be compassionate beings? And not just like a term that we read about, oh, they're meditators, they're compassionate beings, but we have no fucking clue what that even means. And and on all honesty, it took me a long time to really understand at a knowing level what that even means, you know? So to answer your question, how did I make this professionally? It, it was like the heart pull. It was like the decision to continue my personal healing and then share the little bits of pieces that have helped me along the path. And and then in truth is, it's just like not being boring about it. You know, I learned in a tradition that's very structured and there's someone talking at you for hours on end. And when I'm there, I can listen and I can, you know, be... Soaking it up. Oh my God, like a sponge. But coming back to New York City, ain't nobody want to hear you talk for three hours. They want you to give them a little, you know, 20 minute talk and then go off, do the thing and come back and ask questions. And it's this back and forth thing. Uh, and then me being super nerdy about how science was backing up all these practices was what I think put me on to a different stage, you know? So I started to study contemplative psychotherapy here in New York. Um, and being surrounded by, you know, neuroscientists, all kinds of psychoanalysts, and then being like, hi, I have no degree, but I'm really curious, <laughs> and I have healed myself, you know, and continue to do every day, uh, that giving me the green light to be in these rooms with these people. Well, and you just made a really good point of, and continue to heal yourself. I think that something to remember with people living with chronic illness and visible illness is that it's a process. It's not like, okay, you got the right pill, or the right meditation practice, and then all everything is good, check that off the list. This is an ongoing thing. I hate to say ongoing battle because it doesn't have to be negative, but something that you live with on a daily basis. So it's constantly finding new ways to implement things that can better your life. And it sounds like you're helping other people. So right now, what is your focus in what you do? Like, who are you helping on a daily basis? Is it giving talks? Is it focusing on your book? Is it one-on-one? -on -one? Well, thanks for that. <laughs> and I just want to echo, it is an ongoing uh, healing process, you know? And um, just to share in this, uh, a stats, one out of five people in New York City struggle with a mental illness every single day. And then there's another stat that shows that only 17% of the uh, population in the United States is operating with optimum mental uh, health excuse me and as a buddhist i see that the other half or the other people um, are not documented because truth is we're all experiencing suffering and it's either hey i'm experiencing suffering and i'm choosing to do something about it 
or no, I'm just going to live under my shadow and just continue to perpetuate the narratives that are being passed down to me by my parents, friends, and family. And I'm just going to live the same movie for 75 years and then die. Or I'm going to make this human experience epic and I'm going to live out my dreams. Uh, so to answer your question about what I'm doing now is writing the book, which it kind of found me. And then two other writing projects came and found me and I'm really interested in that. And I didn't realize how much impact my little, you know, writing about my internal struggle and how I've helped myself on this struggle on Instagram was like how he had such a, a, a lasting helping and anchor for people as like a home base to come back to, to get these bite-sized messages to continue on their path. And then I work with a, a group of 10 people every week. And this varies, you know, it's uh, models, actors, artists, real estate developers, estheticians. I mean, you, you, the full gamut of incredible people and I'm on the other side sometimes. People are like, oh my God, I can't believe you fire clients. You know, truth is like to do this work, I need commitment and we need discipline, you know, because my work isn't uh, of just sitting there and just listening and asking hard questions. My work is, yes, I will listen and I, I will love up on you and be your biggest cheerleader, but I'm going to be tough love. I'm going to call you out on your shit, you know, and I'm going to, we need to have goals. And a lot of my work is is rooted on like as people are experiencing suffering or getting hooked. It's all about the unhooking and gathering all the energy of the mind to the present moment and then to create from that point. Right. Uh, so sometimes throughout the day, we get hooked on an old story. We get hooked on a future story and that doesn't allow us to be in the present moment. Therefore, we can't create. So what happens throughout the day a lot is a, a constant exchange of voice notes with clients to get them to unhook from the narrative. Uh, from the store that they're holding on to and loosen the grip a little bit and then coming back into the heart, right? And then the coming back into the heart is what the whole book is about. The five-minute daily meditation, uh, the whole creative process and the whole premise of the book and the foundation and the offering of the book is to offer people a way into the heart in just five minutes. And my creative process is like, how do I get someone to walk this seemingly such a far journey, but it's only 18 inches. You know, how do you get from the mind into the heart in five minutes? So the whole book is 365 practices that help you to, you know, with the breath, with an affirmation, with a reflective meditation, with a concentration meditation, or with a mindfulness meditation for you to get to, and a variety, right? Because I got to get really creative. 365 was a big ask uh, for my publisher. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, um, and then doing talks and uh, workshops, you know, it varies. Um, it in a corporate space or in uh, at a conference um, and, you know, finding new ways to just continue to make spirituality sassy, spirituality fun and attainable and not so much about absolute truths, you know, not so much about we're all one and it's all one love, but very much about relative truth and not dwelling on duality so much, but so much about like, hey, if I'm depressed as fuck, and you tell me, hi, sweetie, we're all one and it's all love. How is that going to benefit me? How is that getting me out of bed? How is that shift me from not, you know, committing harm, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so it's my work is very much about like, how do I have one good day? You know, and some of the things that I'm really excited about is how to bring some of these practices. And in truth, it's a lot of very privileged people that I get to work with now. Uh, so that's why these writing projects are really exciting because it gives access for $25 to everyone to have access to these teachings in a very simple, digestible way to a larger audience, right? 
Um, so I want to bring this work into the prison system. I want to uh, change the paradigm of the prison system in a way that like, imagine if people went to prison and came out of prison with institutions and organizations already wanting to hire you because you've acquired this skill set. You know, that only happens with people who go to Ivy League schools. You know, you're finishing up your degree the last year or two. You already have a list of people who you can choose to work for. Uh, but what if we switch the script a little bit and use people who are in prison and the word use is um, it's misused here. But the word use, I'm just saying gift people the opportunity to be in prison and learn some real shit. You know, and I only learned about that when I was doing a, a drug awareness program and working in a rehabilitation center in Nepal after the earthquake and the staggering rates of addiction and how people go to rehabilitation center. And it's almost like there's a stamp in their forehead that says, I'm not hireable. I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. So if you believe that to be who you are, imagine how anyone next to you is picking up on how you're projecting yourself into the world. Um, so I want to do that. And of course, work with my community, the, you know, really make the term queer something that's so fluid and so accessible and so modern enough that more and more people can identify themselves with that with the, this um, terminology and um and then to you know make the spiritual space more colorful you know so often i step into um a lot of spaces and it's very white it's very affluent and uh sometimes at the beginning of it i didn't notice and i was talking to my editor with the second writing project about um how often i felt unsafe at these places you know because I just didn't have anyone to look like me and how psychologically that imprinted my my own well-being. You're answering all the questions before I even ask them. (laughs) 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 We're on to something. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting component, the whole sexuality and being an immigrant component to what you do. You're not a white male who grew up in America. So do you think that part of that is what people are attracted to? I think so. We... We need a new faces in this space, you know, um, and we also need the brown bodies and the queer bodies and the black bodies to know that they they have someone that they can talk to um, because you look so much on Instagram. Everyone sort of looks the same in that space. And, you know, there's a teacher for everybody. There's a guide for everybody. And what I've realized, there's so much internalized shame and homophobia in the queer community so if, if I could be of service in that space um, and then continue to open it up to other communities, it would be continue to be a dream, you know? And one thing, too, to keep in mind, it's like when growing up, just being you, what's non-verbally communicated for you before you even say a word, right? Is that you are different? Is that you're, you know, maybe this or that? You know, when I grew up having people shouting things at me and at some point I just turned it off Uh, but I'm not just listening with my ears right we listen with our whole body and our hearts are picking up on these messages and our minds are getting stuck on those narratives right and then as I continue to open up open up wider and wider and do this work to you know spray the spiritual Clorox on some of these narratives it was almost like I had enough space to to hold space for other people who have been marginalized in, you know, in any other space within the, the, these communities that have been marginalized. So when I'm talking to someone who, who has um, trauma, I've had one-on-one experience with the brown body trauma, with the queer body trauma um, and identity 
in that space, you know? That's incredible. They're lucky to have someone like you who's, you know, interested in having these conversations and not hiding behind it, but really trying to make it more accessible for everybody. Yes. I mean, the whole prison thing is such an amazing concept. I know um, a writing teacher who does writing in prisons in Miami. Wow. Wow. And I think it's such an important tool to provide these people with. I agree. So you talked a lot about your experience helping other people at this point. What does your day-to-day taking care of your mental health and well-being look like? Great question. It starts with me going to child's pose in the morning and um, taking some time to just set some intentions. And it usually sounds like today I'm wiser, I'm kinder, more loving, more forgiving, more accepting, more compassionate, more equanimous. And then I take vows. I take you know refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. And then I repeat a few Tibetan mantras. And then I get out of bed, do my bathroom thing, come back, get some water. And then I sit down to meditate. And most days I sit for an hour in the morning. And the vast majority of that hour is training that mind to focus on the breath. And then the last bits of the practice is to open up the heart and to focus on metta. So practices of gifting myself wishes for my well-being into other people. And then... I either put on some music and dance a little bit. What kind of music? It varies. I mean, lately, I've just been obsessing with uh, Whitney Houston again. Uh, it's not right, but it's okay. I just mm-hmm. have that on repeat. Love I don't it. know why, uh, but it's just, it's been like speaking to me. Also, I love Sam Smith. He's just, oh, I feel like his music is, is like a mantra, you know? And And then I exercise. You know, I either go to the gym and run for a couple miles and then do some weights and things and then go to the steam room like pretty regularly. Um, so that's like the morning routine, the chunk of it. And then throughout the day practices. Right. So earlier today I was getting my passport renewed. So like waiting for two hours and choosing to not go on Instagram and to be there and to send a blessing to everyone waiting in that line, too, and then to choose to acknowledge every human being in that room as a human that may be struggling with you know a to z whatever it may be and trying to find it the the humanness within everybody even if it's just for a glimpse of 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 a second there you know that's a big part of the time Um, and then the food i think a huge part of it and something that really helped me so much throughout this path is changing how i ate you know i used to eat ham and cheese sandwiches for breakfast and meat for lunch and meat for dinner um, and, you know, just really poor quality of food. And then there's so much gut mind and gut brain research. It shows that an inflamed gut is inflaming the mind, the brain, and how that just perpetuates narratives of anxiety and depression. And so changing how I ate, you know, today I eat uh, 100% of plant-based um, diet. And uh, But I always encourage people to just, you know, go up to like 50 or 70% of your of how you eat plant-based whole foods and cut out the sugar. That's the number one uh, enemy for mental health. Cut out the sugar. And laugh every day out loud, you know. Um, and I get so much out of the work, you know, out of seeing people lifting the veils, out of seeing people having a witness perspective to their traumas and not allowing their mental illness to define them and just having that little bit of space. I get so much out of that. It's like, it is so rewarding to see people lifting these veils, you know? I love it. Yeah. I feel like I could sit here for hours and hours listening to you share all this. It's just such incredible work. And 
I know that it's really going to be valuable for our listeners. So how can people learn more about you? Check out your book, Five Minute Daily Meditations, and connect with you and potentially work with you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, so check out the book. Um, I'm really excited about that. And then find me on Instagram at Sa Simone, uh, S-A-H-D-S-I-M-O-N-E. And um, look up on my website for like scheduling things, www.sadesimone.com. Or link in bio on Instagram has everything, you know? Yes, and we'll be sure to link everything in the show notes, including the link to his book so you can purchase it. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, my love. What an honor. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.